0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of mapping out the patient decision journey. This session is led by Dr. Marilyn Metcalf, patient engagement lead for GSK. Dr. Metcalf is joined by Rob Long from Uplifting Athletes, Lily Stairs from Savvy Cooperative, Mary Murray of BMS, Hannah Watson-Eckard of Inspire, and Robert Wecker, a three-time cancer survivor. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: So I'm Marilyn Metcalf. I'm the patient engagement lead at GSK who is aligned to oncology, and I also do a lot of external collaborations. I'm honored to be here. I absolutely love this meeting, and uh, I'm so thrilled to see it continue to grow. We have a wonderful panel, and I'm going to ask all of you to come on up with me. I'm going to be sitting here next to the rest of the panel, and we'd like to talk. Yeah, come on up. And uh, we'd like to talk with you about uh, the patient's decision journey. So um, we're going to start by letting everybody introduce themselves, and then we will go into some discussion that we had previously with a diagram to help you kind of sort through things. And then there are some additional resources that we're contributing to the toolbox that you will see in the slides that we've provided for later. We're just going to use the one animated slide right now, but um, you'll see more detail if you want to look at those resources later. Okay, so, want to start, Lily?
2: Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Lily Stairs. I got into patient advocacy about seven years ago when I was diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases back-to-back, so I'm currently living with Crohn's disease and psoriatic arthritis. That propelled my, my career in Brought me into patient advocacy within the life sciences and I have worked in the clinical trial space before as the head of patient advocacy at Clara Health, the company connecting patients to clinical trials, and I now serve as the head of growth and partnerships at Savvy Cooperative. You can think of us as the match.com for patient insights.
3: So hi everybody, I'm Mary Murray. Um, Bristol-Myers Squib. it says diversity in patient engagement, which was true, and I sent that in, but now it's enrollment and engagement, and, you know, ask me six months from now, it'll probably be a little different as the acquisition, uh, comes to fruition, we hope. So, um, I've been in this role about, uh, it'll be seven years, uh, it was about seven years ago, uh, in April, that BMS decided, hey, we need, uh, not just an advocacy role, but a patient engagement role in clinical development. And not a traditional advocacy role, but an operational role. And I think um, that was really forward thinking. And uh, as I said, I think it was at the first meeting of this, and it was smaller. There was a snowstorm, so I know the registration was higher at the time, but it was smaller. It was a much more, um, it was a very intimate meeting. But it's really amazing to see how this idea of patient engagement in research in a real operational way has grown. And um, it's just exciting, and I'm so happy and proud to be a part of it. Nope, now I don't need to pass. We're
4: shared. Uh, My name is Robert Long, and like Mary, uh, my title has since changed since I sent in the (laughs) the information. But uh, so I am the executive director of an organization called Uplifting Athletes. Um, A a few of you in the room were at our event on Saturday night that we held uh, called the Young Investigator Draft um, at Lincoln Financial Field, Eagle Stadium. Uh, We fund, uh, we work to leverage the platform that athletes have across the country. Uh, to raise awareness and funds for the rare disease cause. Um, I am here, I am also a rare disease patient. I played football at Syracuse University, I uh, thought I was headed to the NFL. Um, and uh, five days after my last game, I was diagnosed with a high-grade glioma, uh, an aggressive uh, rare form of brain cancer. Um, but I am fortunately still here eight years later and uh, happy to be joining you guys uh, and uh, looking forward to, to being a part of the panel.
5: Morning, everyone. Uh, Rob Wecker, Uh, I guess I'm up here primarily because I'm a three-time cancer survivor, uh, having a a most recent bout with uh, pancreatic cancer, so Alex Trebek and I do have something in common. Um, I'm also a former executive uh, within R&D with a pharma company uh, in the non-clinical space, so uh, understand how that part works as well. Uh, I currently sit on the Penn Advisory Council for patients, um, where we get to sort of see all projects that uh, come by and uh, look forward to sharing my story a little bit. So you can see they're a pair of boots here, and they're sort of to remind me that until you really walk the journey in our shoes, you can only appreciate the story. So I'll pass off.
0: I'm Hannah Watson Um I'm research manager at Inspire. For those not familiar with us, Inspire.com is a social media platform that connects patients and caregivers with each other. Um, We have over a million members with a whole host of medical conditions. Um, In my role as research manager, um, I am one of the people that really appreciates the stories. I help infuse the patient voice into clinical trial protocol. Um, We've worked with pharma companies to look at individual protocols and get patient and caregiver feedback on the protocols, as well as we've done some research around patient and caregiver sentiment around clinical trials in general.
1: Okay. Thank you, panel. Uh, So if we can go ahead and bring up the diagram, please. Uh, As many of you know, it all starts with a diagnosis, and um, we had one of our panelists saying, well, Ideally, early diagnosis. We know that's not always true, but would anyone like to chime in with a little bit of your experience around your diagnosis or your misdiagnosis or your re-diagnosis um, before we move into the rest of it?
5: Yes, I'll chime in for that one. Um, so so basically, uh, two of the favorite words I have in the English language are early detection. An early detection clearly gives a much better uh, likelihood of a successful outcome. And a lot of times, at least for me, when I was dealing with local doctors, they didn't really have a good understanding of what my issues were. So getting as fast as I could to a specialist to be able to sort of diagnose and come up with a problem and come up with a path of solution is critical. So while detection and diagnosis is is important, I think that early is is where to
4: go. I just quickly wanted to say, I think as a patient and going through this process, I think uh, in the very early stages, I was my own worst enemy in this journey. Right? You you try to, uh, kind of being a stubborn 21 year old male at that time, um, you wanted to not uh, recognize the signs and symptoms of what was going on. So encouraging people to listen to their bodies and recognize, you know, when things aren't feeling right to go and see help and get help, Um, because that can be, you know, uh, make a huge difference in uh, the outcomes, like you said, by, you know, getting that early uh, treatment and uh, detection.
1: Okay. Thank you. So this is loosely based on a... um, An influence diagram that comes out of Decision Sciences, if any of you are familiar with that. So the squares, boxes are going to be decisions, and then there are going to be lots of bubbles that talk about issues that influence that. So the first decision that we talked about was just seeking treatment or not. And if so, do we go with standard or care, or do we go with clinical trials? And then we had all of these issues that we started talking about influencing, um, such as what are the treatment options, uh, what does my prognosis look like, which specialists are available, and how do I find them, um, where do I get clinical trial information, where's, where's the right place, and it sounds like social media and other things play a much larger role than they used to in other patients, and uh, whether placebo is involved. So if you all would like to um, talk a little bit more as, as we did Uh, during our TC about some of those issues and why you brought them up. So one of the big issues that
0: we see over and over again is that patients and caregivers don't know where to find information about clinical trials. Um, Most people are aware that clinical trials exist somewhere in the universe, but then how does that apply to me? And many patients that I've talked to are reliant on their doctors and think, oh, if there's a clinical trial, then my doctor will just tell me about it. Um, Less than half of patients are independently researching clinical trials. And those that are independently researching clinical trials are still having trouble finding information. Clinicaltrials.gov is the go-to place for a lot of people Um, But even that's really hard to navigate. A lot of people report trouble um, finding a trial that applies to them. I mean, we heard Judy Perkins earlier today saying that even when she tried to search for her own trial on clinicaltrials.gov, immunotherapy wasn't even in the keyword. It was hard to find the trial that she was already in. Um, So another place that's emerged as a way to find out about clinical trials is social media. So patients that may not have even done... Um, done the step to be proactively researching clinical trials, will go on social media, connect with a group of patients and caregivers that are going through a similar experience, and all it takes is one person in that group to say, hey, has anyone heard about this trial? I hear it's enrolling. And then the patients are able to find out more information through each other and learn about clinical trial opportunities.
2: I have kind of two different points here. One is that uh, as an autoimmune patient, clinical trials were never even put on the table for me because there are a lot of options, thankfully, that currently exist, but As someone who I would now consider myself an empowered advocate, I do wish that those options were put in front of me so that I could have better understood them. Um, And I think that's something that we as a community need to, somebody mentioned this this morning, um, trying to really educate physicians. So a bigger push with MSLs to get out there and be talking to physicians. especially in cases where it's not necessarily life or death, we know that clinical trials are often being brought up at that stage. But what about before then? What about the people who ha- already have options on the table? And for most of us, we're hearing about these options first from our doctor. So while I do believe we need to be doing a lot more with like direct-to-patient, there's a lot of value in going direct-to-physician. So that's something that we should consider. The other point I wanted to bring up is all of the different components that a patient thinks about when they are considering treatment options and clinical trials. And one thing that I think is a good example of something that I've personally struggled with and that might not be the first thing that comes to mind when you're thinking about a patient's journey, as an autoimmune disease patient, many of us are diagnosed. 75% of people diagnosed with autoimmune diseases are women. And usually you're diagnosed when you're of childbearing age. And while, when I was diagnosed, kids were, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, they're still probably five or 10 years down the line for me, That's something that is a part of my thought process when I think about treatment. So what is the, how does this affect future children or, um, you know, my ability to conceive and all of those different things. And unfortunately, as we all know, there's not a whole lot of research for uh, women who are pregnant and breastfeeding on medicines that exist. So then think about trying to put that in front of somebody who's considering a clinical trial. That's really scary. And so I think trying to be prepared to have conversations around some of those other factors that might not be top of mind.
3: He's so chivalrous, and, I've <laughs> and I keep refusing his microphone for Lily's microphone. Um, just to give sort of an industry side of that coin a little bit, I think you raise a good point because it's often in our um, inclusion exclusion criteria, because of the asset itself or the compound itself, women of childbearing age might be excluded, right? Because of all those um, considerations. So we have to understand that even if they're a, a high percentage, if the high prevalence, Uh, in that population we have to understand what we can reasonably what's the population that can be part of research um, because of those restrictions. Um, And the other thing is um, you talked a a little bit about um, what we've talked about um, we're looking at the decision journey here and there's a lot of bubbles and there's more bubbles to come which are all good bubbles Um, but you'll see like there's a lot going on in someone's mind about the decision and That started at least me thinking, you know, we've got operational deliverables, our our deliverable is recruitment, our deliverable deliverable is enrollment, but what if our deliverable shifted to being decision support? And what are the um, questions that people really need to answer at the point in time where they have this choice, a standard of care versus a clinical trial? And so we're thinking really three questions. Is it right for me clinically, which we do a lot of talking about? can I afford it? Is it convenient? And then kind of what else matters? And if we can be thinking about all the communications um, that we're preparing about our given studies or the given research project that we're doing and just try to think how do we help a person evaluate this option by helping them answer these three questions that um, that might help not just with enrollment, but with the outcome, with the person's experience as they're, as they're making this choice. And so I think that's something in industry we can be learning to do better.
5: So let me just um, try to paint a little bit clearer picture for you. So if you can close your eyes for a second, and I'm a doctor my mom would be so proud. I'm a doctor, and I come in, and I say, I'm sorry you have cancer, or whatever the disease is. If you think I hear, as a patient, you hear anything else through that entire meeting, you're wrong. You completely zone out. You might be there with your, with your spouse trying to understand and absorb what it is that just happened to you, because your world has basically been turned upside down in about five minutes. So you really need to think about what is the patient hearing? What's their reaction gonna be? Again, starting to build towards the social media angle. You then go home and it's like, oh, well, I've got pancreatic cancer. Let me go read about that. And as someone who is diagnosed with that, don't do it. You start reading, you're gonna get scared beyond wits. So you really need to sort of get that balance, and it then comes back, well, someone asked me, well, how did you determine whether to be on a clinical trial or not? And having been through the, hey, you've got cancer three times, pancreatic has a survival rate, five-year survival rate of about 8%. Other kinds of cancer I had had a survival rate of 90-plus percent. So yes, it's concerning, those other forms, but 7%, 8%, you have my attention, right? And you have a willingness in a a patient who's probably gonna go out and take risks because they know their options might be well limited, right? So you have to really think holistically, what's the patient doing as they're trying to make this decision? If I listened to all the people, I I came from a former background. I had plenty of people weighing in on their views. If I listened to everybody, I wouldn't have gone with the trial, but I went with it anyway.
1: Thank you. And I was also speaking with a physician on the break, and we were talking about the physician's panel tomorrow, and I asked, so are clinical trials really talked about during medical school? And maybe that's another opportunity where we start to think about, you know, not – pushing clinical trials, but just thinking about them as an option when it's appropriate. And if we can start to um, uh, educate about that dialogue a little bit sooner. So we also talked about a whole host of things that uh, fit under Mary's question of, does it fit with my life? And so I wanted us to spend a little bit of time just thinking about everything else. And the colors are there because this is something that Cons- patients are talking about considering before the trial, but also just continues all the way through. And one of the panelists was saying, you know, everything that was there before the trial is there during the trial is there after the trial. So we wanted to reflect that as well. So starting with the costs, I naively used to think that well, if you're in a clinical trial, all those costs are covered, aren't they? And apparently, that's not the case. So um, would a would anyone like to start chiming in about just, you know, trying to figure out how much does it cost? What is that pay structure and, uh, you know, what do you do
3: to figure all that out? Do you want to do the patient side and then I'll, should i or should I set it up for folks? Cause I can just, do either who, side. Who here, who here thinks that everything's paid for when you're in a clinical trial? Although she just gave you the answer, so <laughs> your, your hand goes Spoiler. up, you weren't, you weren't listening. So. So just so you know, the Affordable Care Act, so I mean, I can't speak to everything beforehand, but the Affordable Care Act has language in it that says uh, private insurers have to cover routine care costs associated with clinical trial participation. So like an office visit. If that office visit would be covered if you're not in a clinical trial, it ought to also be covered if you are in a clinical trial, okay? So that's the law. But, and Medicare has done that since I think the year 2000. But Medicaid is exempt. And there's only 10 states. So, Medicaid, as you might know, is administered at the state level. And so now the states have to consider legislation for their state Medicaid programs um, about routine care costs associated with clinical trial participation. Only 10 states have passed that, there's 39 states. Uh, that have other sort of language in that allows, um, that says the state Medicaid programs will cover that. Then there's self-insured plans, which are done through like employers, like probably everybody here has an employer self-insured program. That's not governed by state, and I might be making a mistake here, but that's governed by um, a whole different level of planning. And so they may or may not. Your plan, your plan. Go back and check. Your plan may or may not cover routine care costs associated with clinical trial participation. They're exempt from the ACA part of the law. And then there's other plans that are grandfathered um, because if they existed before the ACA, they're also not. You know, they also don't have that requirement. So there's a lot legally that um, is. There's there's a lot of ways insurers can deny. Costs associated with clinical trial participation. I'll just say that. <laughs> so, and, then, and you're not always aware of it. Okay.
1: And so I'm watching our time slip yep. away. So let's, oh, that's okay. So let, let's have so, um, a respondent, and then we'll kind of get the rest of the diagram up so we can have some time for questions. Okay. To go for so, it.
5: <laughs> I mean, from the, from the patient perspective, um, I mean, there, there are lots of things that come into play. I mean, surely the the costs that are directly in front of us are most concerned initially, right? But some of us try to think beyond the trial as well. So what's going to be covered or not covered beyond the trial? What are payers going to pay or not pay? So, for example, for me, (laughs) my doctor was advocating that I do proton beam therapy. And I did that, and I went to the... Uh, the payer and the payer basically said, those you get uh, significant disease might be where the word experimental, right? So they literally go, Oh, let's see, he's got a pancreatic, uh, you know, he's got this. Uh, sorry, that's experimental. We don't cover experimental therapy, right? And I then spent another eight weeks debating uh, with the insurance company and ultimately change their view. But in the meantime, I was sort of, I need to be treated, right? Yeah. So so I think you need to understand, but no one ever thinks to go out and ask those questions because, oh, I'm going to sign up for a trial with company X. You're going to cover my first, you know, two months out of, out of the, the box. I'm okay. Um, but there are a whole slew of issues around costs that seem to be buried, and uh, you know, insurance companies and others can be very good at burying them. Uh, there's a whole other aspect here, I don't know if you want me to touch no. on it briefly or not. Or. Um,
1: let's go ahead and get the rest of the diagram up and then we'll, yeah. we'll circle back around to that. So there is um, just the, the reminder that you might enroll in a trial, then there's still a decision if you're going to stay in the trial, and that may be a whole separate set of considerations. And the communications around the trial, before, during, after, may be a big part of that, and the importance of letting patients know what they contributed and what they were on, and um, how the trial went. And is there an opportunity for another trial? We heard that you can sometimes be uh, not eligible based on treatment you've already gotten. I think most of us are familiar with that. And one of the aspects I wanted to be sure we touched on was um, we talked a lot about family and the, uh, the difficulties of just the long-term dealing with those diagnoses and how to support our family and how our family can support us. So I definitely want to take some time to, uh, to touch on that point before we open it up to the audience as well.
4: Yeah, so... Try this one, okay. <laughs> now, now <we'll> <laughs> yeah, we'll. um, so uh, I think one of the, uh, one of we talked about on the call before we had uh, for today, uh, one of the things we did want to touch on was kind of the uh, the family relationship and kind of the mental health aspect of, of going through all of this um, and the toll that it took. And for me, um, similar to Rob but not the same, my long-term five-year survival rate was 15 percent, right? So at the time of my diagnosis, I, I, and, you know, from a lack of understanding initially, I, I didn't know that I was going to survive or that I would survive. I pretty much had resigned my fate that I was going to die and die early. And um, the long-term ramifications of that, um, as it's now been eight years and I have been, you know, healthy for that duration, um, you know, the it, the have only been magnified over that time because I didn't know that you know, the, the trauma that I had experienced was causing uh, a, a disease called post-traumatic stress disorder from the time of my diagnosis. And I didn't know about this and nobody had brought it to my attention. And so I didn't know that after eight years and being seemingly seemingly physically healthy and, and um, medically cleared that my scans were coming back, why I was struggling so much with everything that I had been going through, and uh, to finally find the support and to to reach out to somebody who said, "Oh no, this is this is fairly common. You have gone through a very traumatic experience. You've gone through this, and now you're dealing with the the survival skill, the uh, everything else associated with that." And so um, nobody at any point along the path had mentioned, "Hey, you know, if this goes well, there are other things that you may, other side effects you may." have or or, or may come up in the future. And I think um, it was unfortunate that I had to figure that out by myself. I'm glad I did. I wouldn't change anything that I've been through in my life. Um, but I think for other patients and other people going through that, through that journey, it's important for them to be aware of these other side effects that can pop up during this journey that, um, you know, if your cancer is not returning or, or you've been in remission for a while, um, that there are still other things that you need to, recognize and be aware of as a patient and specifically our family, right? My, my parents have gone through this, my sister has gone through this. Um, so they're just as much affected by all of this. Absolutely,
1: thank you. And uh, in our last five minutes, minus 12 seconds, um, I just wanted to see if the panel had one final comment and then let's open it up uh, for any other questions and comments from the audience.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to speak to um, side effects because that's the number one question that we get from patients when they're looking at protocol is, what are the side effects? How is this going to impact my day-to-day life? And and then how is this going to impact my day-to-day life down down the road? You know, sometimes I'll be speaking to single parents and they'll say, I need to still be able to take care of my kids. My kid is in middle school. How do I get through the day and take care of my kid? Is this medication going to help with that or is it going to hurt with that? And so that's information that patients really need to know on all of the side effects. And that's information that they're actively looking for when they're considering a clinical trial.
2: I have a quick one-minute story uh, regarding remaining in a clinical trial. This is something I really like to share because it tends to stick in people's minds. While I was at Clara Health, we had a a patient we were helping do concierge travel for, and she was, you know, flew out and she called us at like midnight and was like, I am so sorry to call you so late, but I have to be honest with you, the food that they're giving me at the trial site tastes like what I imagine prison food would taste like. (laughs) And she was like, I. Honestly and might like have to drop out of the trial if like this is the food that they're going to be giving me I mean it was that serious and she was a rare disease patient. So obviously we all know that like that's You know, we spend all this money recruiting and then to lose patients is even more uh, even worse So just there there are these aspects like that we ended up getting her Grubhub or something But this speaks to a few different things Um, One I think trial simulations are great when you can do it I know when you have a lot of sites that can be tricky but thinking through some of those factors and then uh, on the same token, making sure that we're, we're not losing that human touch. I think technology is great, but let's not lose the human touch of bringing that in and making sure patients have support along the way. So that's, that's my tidbit for making sure patients remain in trials.
5: Hello? Hello? I want people to think about a slightly different stakeholder who is actively engaged very often, and that's the employer. And the the contract, if you would, between the employer and the employee. And I can't count the number of times I went back to the HR department at my company, and they said, oh, we have this great short-term disability, you're just gonna go on that and everything will be fine. And I'm like, well, no, I wanna work, and if I go on short-term disability, I can't work. And they're not listening, right? So the employer and the employee and the boss, for that matter, you know, having that engagement and that discussion to hear what preferences are and to the degree they can legally try to, you know, make everyone happy is is critical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was actually beginning when I was working in benefit risk and thinking about you know the patient's perspective and that. The thing I always emphasized the most was, what are the patient's goals for their own treatment? Why are they here? Let's start there. And everything else build
6: out from that.
1: So audience, um, if I can ask you to come up to microphones if you have a question,
6: please. Hi. Good evening. Or good morning. I guess it's still morning. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your stories with us. I just wanted to say that there, there's power in your stories, and I'm so glad you recognized that and came here to share with us today. Um, I heard discussion mentioned around providing patients the information and education they need to make decisions at the points where they're at. And I think that um, those of us in the industry often view informed consent as the time in which we're giving the patients the information to make that decision. But um, I am from Pfizer, but I am also a patient, so I, on my patient hat, recognize that a lot of us have had to make that decision long before we get to the informed consent process. So for our patients today, I just wondered if you could share with those of us from the industry what information you felt like you needed when, um, and what would you like for us to do to better serve those educational needs and support you in your decision-making process?
4: I think, uh, as Rob mentioned before, when you're in that doctor's office and they tell you that you have cancer, um, everything else goes completely blank. and. Um, so I, I think there needs to be, and, I, and I'm not here to offer the best solution to that, but some kind of follow-up in, in, in not the minutes or seconds after they're told that you have cancer and they go, because this is what happened to me. I, they said, you have brain cancer, and um, you know we don't have a cure for it, but there's some things we can try. And then we have clinical trials as well. And everybody was just like, wait, what? And so at that point, then we're trying to figure out and trying to make a decision you know what we do and so I think there needs to be a process whether it's through the healthcare providers um, or through uh, the insurance or wh- however it goes but there needs to be better information relayed to the patients um, at a time when you're going through something that's so incredibly stressful um, and life altering
0: um, the other thing you can do is involve the caregiver if the patient is, is obviously processing a lot and the caregiver is usually in the room right there with them and maybe in a better state of mind to be able to kind of absorb that information in the moment Um, the other thing that we see is that depending on the condition sometimes it's the caregiver that's really actively looking for information now the final decision is always always with the patient Um, every caregiver i've spoken to has said i would never think to make a decision for the patient but what I want to do is be able to give them all the information that they need. So being able to give caregivers information as well, where they can then turn around and um, cohesively explain what it is to the patient, so that the patient can make a decision. If it's a condition that where they have good days and bad days, then the caregiver is in the best position to present that information on a good day.
1: Okay. Thank you all. And- I think we are about out of time. Is sorry, there... can I just yep. one quick yep. thing? Okay, sorry, yes, Back one more no, point sorry. and then one more so, question. So the
5: other thing is, I think, to provide a holistic view, right? It's not just the medical, it's not just the financial, it's not just the work, It's it's everything together, right? And providing a patient with all the options and all the different venues they need to think about because we don't. We don't think about these when we walk into a doctor's office, right? And if there's someone there who can help prod that conversation beyond just the medical, that's great.
7: Hi. uh, Thank you very much. It was a very good panel and really important comments. And I think that one thing that we didn't talk about, um, started to, was certainly the physicians. And the physicians and their teams, because we know it's the nurses, the genetic counselors, who actually know the patients the best and know who might be more interested in participating in the clinical trial. But what we didn't discuss is because of technology and because of this amazing burgeoning growth period that the industry is in and medical research is in, that we have competing clinical trials. And you can have multiple trials available at one site. And Ken uh, Getz and I were on a panel years ago at Bio where we talked about the ethics of competing clinical trials because we know that not every physician is going to say, here are the four studies that my team is conducting, and let's talk about each one that you might be available for. But they actually decide which patients they're going to offer, which studies to, before those patients walk in the door. And I think that that's a problem for, for patients and caregivers.
1: Okay, thank you. Do we have th- one well,
5: response? <laughs> so the quick response for me, at least, is is as a patient, I'm agnostic. I don't care. I don't care if it's from company X, company Y, doctor. I want what's best for me, right? So, however you can, however we can convey that, uh, what is it, agnosticism? Right, (laughs) is 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 powerful for me. Okay. Listening.
1: Panel, thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate your time, your input.
0: We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.